We don't tell people with Alzheimer's disease, which is a neurodegenerative disorder of the brain, where the brain, literally parts of the brain begin to degenerate, that, you know, that's caused them weak faith that they're losing their memory or that they're behaving in odd ways and things like that. We do do that with mental health problems, you know, like bipolar disorder and depression, anxiety. And there's a long history uh, in Christendom. I mean, there always was some kind of a separation between what we thought of as mental problems, we saw those as spiritual, and what we thought as physical, things that we could see, we treated those people differently. Even in some of the early monastic hospitals where monks and, and brothers and priests were taking care of people, and that's really all the medical care there was, you know, they treated people with mental illness differently than people with physical illness. They would care for and, and comfort those that had physical illness, try to cure them. And those that had were acting odd and thinking odd, you know, they saw that as a spiritual problem, they would punish those individuals in an attempt to try to bring them closer to their faith. You're listening to the Refraining Ministries podcast, providing help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through pain. Here's our host, Colleen Swindoll Thompson. Swindoll Thompson, and I am delighted to interview Dr. Matthew Stanford today. Dr. Stanford, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about something that is an issue that requires time, attention, thought, and is quite pressing, and we need an awakening in the church, and that is about mental health and how we deal with that in the church. And Dr. Stanford, you have co-founded the Grace Alliance Center with Joe Padilla, who we talked with last year, and then you are currently the CEO of the Hope and Healing Center and Institute in Houston, Texas, as well as adjunct professor of the Menninger Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Baylor College of Medicine and Department of Psychology at the University of Houston. You have written two fantastic works, one that we'll talk about today, Grace for the Afflicted, a clinical and biblical perspective on mental illness, and then another excellent work which I looked through, The Biology of Sin, Grace, Hope, and Healing for Those Who Feel Trapped. I'm wondering, Matthew, I don't even have this question in my notes, but how many people do you believe feel somewhat trapped in this mental health church issue that we're facing today where they have nowhere to go? Well, you know, the statistics tell us that, you know, about one out of every five Americans uh, are going to struggle with a mental health problem in a given year. And, and research that we've done uh, within congregations, uh, across denominations, across state lines, uh, you know, we find exactly the same number of individuals, obviously, within the church that are struggling with that. So really, you know, if you're a clergy and you're looking out across your congregation uh, on a Sunday morning, you know, about a quarter, you know, or so of that uh, congregation is going to be either themselves struggling with a mental health problem or a family member is going to be struggling with a mental health problem. You know, one of the things that you said in the book, one in four churches attends to this problem. That's a lot of people that are not having any care given to them. Right. No, I mean, it's, you know, we really have a tremendous mental health crisis in the country. Uh, and, you know, right now, a majority of individuals 
uh, with mental illness receive no treatment. So 60% uh, of adults with, mental, with a diagnosis of a mental health problem receive no treatment. Uh, about 50% of children and adolescents receive no treatment. We, we just have a real problem with access in this country. We have a, a real problem with uh, stigma and shame. Mental health problems are looked at very differently than other types of illness. I mean, people with cancer wouldn't even think twice about going to get a treatment, whereas people with bipolar disorder and, and other issues like that, they're, they're very ashamed to go and get that. And in the church, we have a, you know, an additional stigma where we kind of spiritualize these issues yeah. in a subset of our congregations, and then people are kind of looked at as kind of deficit in their faith in some way, and that's why they might struggle with depression or anxiety, when in reality, these are illnesses like any other illness. Well, I'm so glad you just said that because that leads us right into one of the first things I read in the book. You say, science and faith have had a long and tense relationship, a dangerous and damaging battle, a battle between faith and psychology. Psychiatry is being waged daily in churches throughout the world. Lives are being destroyed. Men and women are told they need to pray more and turn from their sin. Mental illness is equated with demon possession, weak faith, and generational sin. An estimated 26.2% of Americans ages 18 and older suffer from some kind of disorder. You talk about when you were a deacon at a church and a friend asked a question. He said, citing 2 Peter 1.3, the scripture tells us that we have everything we need for life and godliness. Can you help me understand why Anna's bipolar and her dependence on medication is not an issue of weak faith or sin? You just said we don't tell people with cancer, you know, that they have weak faith or someone with arthritis, which there are 150 different kinds of that, or autoimmune disorders. So what is the problem with this? Why do we separate mental health? Well, you know, I think, it, I mean, it's it's a complex phenomenon. And, um, you know, I get verses thrown at me all the time, that verse out of Second Peter, you know, different verses. But I think the, the problem is, is that we really, as a, as a society, as a culture, we just really don't appreciate just how serious mental illnesses are. I, I think we just kind of think, well, you know, you just, you're depressed, well, you just need to get over it. You know, I had some bad things happen in my life and I did, you know, I kind of worked through it. That we, we, for, we, we think about it, we think of it as situational. We don't think about it as an actual illness. And you have a brain in your head, just like you have a heart in your chest and a liver in your abdomen that, uh, you know, they can be damaged and your brain can be damaged. I mean, we don't tell people with Alzheimer's disease, which is a neurodegenerative disorder of the brain, where the brain, literally parts of the brain begin to degenerate. We don't tell them that, you know, that's because of weak faith that they're losing their memory or that they're behaving in odd ways and things like that. You know, and we do do that with mental health problems, uh, you know, like, like bipolar disorder and depression, anxiety. And there's a long history uh, in Christendom uh, if you go all the way back to where, you know, kind of medical care hospitalization really began, I mean, there always was some kind of a separation between what we thought of as mental problems. We saw those as spiritual and what we thought as physical things that we could see. We treated those people differently. Even in some of the early monastic hospitals where monks and, and brothers and priests were taking care of people, and that's really all the medical care there was, mm. you know, they treated people with mental illness differently than people with physical illness. They would you know, care for and, and comfort those that had physical illness, try to cure them. And those that had you know, were acting odd and thinking odd, you know, they saw that as a spiritual problem. They would punish those individuals in an attempt to try to bring them closer to their faith. And so I think really we've brought that into 
uh, modern times. Now, there's wonderful examples in the church of fantastic movements within Christendom, Quakers, particularly up in the Northeast, that really started psychiatry and psychology in this country. But really, unfortunately, what we've done is we, we kind of think these are things you can think your way out of, and then we equate them with spiritual weakness, and we really hurt a lot of people. There's a statistic in the disability world that about 97% of parents raising children who have some sort of invisible disability, which is 90% of the disabilities in general, they don't attend church because they say it's harder to go to church than it is to go anywhere else because I'm so judged. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I want to do through our time today and across the board with all my guests is to say we need to be, bring people into our care and to love them back to health and to learn what that looks like. In fact, you just mentioned through Christendom that you talk about a situation in 2005, Sister Irina, a 23-year-old Romanian Orthodox nun, died of dehydration and suffocation following an exorcism ritual at the Holy Trinity Covenant Church in a Romanian village. She had been gagged with a towel and chained to a cross for several days without food or water. And her brother had asked that the monk serving the covenant would come and do the exorcism. She had been treated for schizophrenia, but they said it, the medication wasn't working. So they were going to try this. <laughs> Shortly before her death, she said she was hearing voices. They performed this ritual and she passed away. And on his trial, which I was thankful to hear that there was a trial, they asked him, was she mentally ill? And his response is, you can't drive the devil out of people with pills. God has performed a miracle for her. Finally, Arena is delivered from evil. That makes me so angry, Matt. Well, yeah, I mean, and it should. And, and, you know, I think one of the things that people will do is they'll I think that they'll think, well, that's a really extreme example. But frankly, there actually have been very similar examples that have happened here in the United States where, um, you know, individuals have, uh, you know, there was a case in Dallas where a woman uh, decapitated her infant child. Um, and then, uh, you know, at the trial, her pastor was put on the was put on the stand and, you know, and he said, you know, that, uh, you know, it was a sin to take medication and that he teaches that you shouldn't take medication. And then she was, you know, she was mentally ill and she, now he had never specifically told her that she shouldn't, but he told his congregation that, I mean, even Andrea Yates who, uh, drowned yeah. five of her children, uh, you know, she very much uh, believed that she was saving them from, uh, from the devil and from hell, and uh, and did you know come from a tradition that uh, didn't looked at didn't look at mental illness as legitimate? Now you know we're looking at about thirty percent of congregations that we find, kind of thirty to forty percent teach this idea that mental health is a, or mental illness is a spiritual issue, but that kind of leaks into all of Christendom. And you know I you know I would say this. I mean I really do honestly believe that the church is the answer to the mental health crisis that we have. I think we have a number of resources and opportunities uh, to offer that the secular world doesn't have. And one of the things most people don't realize is that people in psychological distress, people struggling with these mental health problems, are more likely to go to a clergy first than a mental health care provider. So th this is something that's been demonstrated across the, across the country. Uh, and it's not just for people of faith. Anyone in distress, psychological distress, is actually more likely to go to a clergy member 
than a mental health care provider because it's just easy to get in. I mean, you can walk down the street to your local church right now, walk in the door, say, I need to talk to somebody, I'm having a problem, and you'll see somebody. You know, if you called a psychiatrist today and said you were a new client, it'll be six to eight weeks before you get in. So, you know, God is sending uh, these broken individuals to us. And I think we are uh, really kind of you know, and one, one part of us is apathetic and we just don't think we have anything to do. And another part of us is kind of over-spiritualizing this. I mean, I always say to clergy, I say, if somebody walked into your office and had a gaping wound in their arm and they're bleeding all over the place, exactly. I don't think the first thing you would do is sit them down and try to share the gospel with them <laughs> and then try to say, you know, I think that we need to pray against the demonic here or whatever. Uh, I think what you do is you say, hey, let me help you relieve your suffering by getting you to a doctor. Yeah. and begin to build that relationship. And, uh, you know, and I think those are the kind of things that we see in the scripture also. I mean, Jesus is very concerned about people's suffering and he wants to relieve that physical suffering. And along the way, he reveals himself. And there's plenty of examples of Jesus healing people that don't even know who he is. I mean, he heals the man born blind and doesn't reveal himself as Messiah until later to this individual. So the church has a huge role to play. You know, God is sending people to us first that have these issues. And I think it's time for us to step up and say, this is the mission field of the 21st century, and we're going to make a difference. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting that you note the man born blind because the people were asking, well, who sinned? You know, even in scripture, they're saying, well, who sinned? You know, right. is it his parents or is it his problem or whatever? And Christ is saying, I've healed him so that you can see my power being made whole through him. It's not about someone sinning. It's right. It's, it's nothing new. I mean, this is the this is an age old. As long as the church has existed, this is an issue. But mental health problems are seen differently than others. You know, even today. I mean, I think uh, something that we can see has changed. Addiction is much more accepted as an issue mm -hmm. uh, within the church, and most churches have an addiction ministry now. Uh, there was a time. There were generations where people with addictions wouldn't even be allowed to come into church. They were just looked at as morally weak. And, you know, I, and I, I'm, you know, I really praise that and I'm happy to see that because it makes me feel that maybe a day will come where we're a little bit more open to people with mental health problems. You know, pastors are surprised when I tell them that people with mental health problems are more likely to come to them first. You know, many of them say, well, I never see anybody with a mental health problem. Nobody walks in the door and says, hey, by the way, I woke up this morning and I think I have schizophrenia. Right, I heard voices and this it, morning. <laughs> but, you know, they come in because they're, you know, their relationships are falling apart or they spent yeah. all their money or whatever. Uh, we just need to be a little bit more aware of what's going on because we can really make a difference in their lives. Well, and you're doing that. And let's start doing that in this question. You talk in this fantastic chapter on Satan and de demonic activity. You talk about the work of Satan and his demons in the Bible is described as one, deception and false teaching, which you have verses for that. Number two, hindering prayer. Number three, causing human affliction and torment. And then you say, finally, then most importantly, Satan was defeated by Christ's death and resurrection. He is a defeated foe. And as children of the living God, we must recognize that fact and understand truly that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Then what you did is you have five activities or five ways that Satan and his little helper dudes, <laughs> that's not what scripture calls them though, act. One, temptation, deception, accusation, infirmity, and possession. 
Now unpack that because some people will say possession, oppression, you know, what does that look like? Educate us on how we can separate mental illness from the real and actual activity of Satan. Right. Well, I mean, I think, you know, for people of faith, and, and you know, let me just start off by saying I do believe uh, in the devil and an adversary, in a, in a, you know, I don't know if you want to say a physical, I mean, but I believe the devil as it's described in the Bible, and I do believe in the demonic. I believe that there are demons that are trying to thwart the will of God and, and thwart the purposes of God. Clearly, because um, so, you write about that. And coming against the people of God. So, you know, I do believe in that. I, I think, unfortunately, what, what we tend to do is when we don't understand something or something's fearful to us, we immediately default to that being the demonic. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I think that you know, we tend, we don't, at this point in time, when someone comes to us and says they have cancer, we do not go, that's the demonic. Okay. I mean, it's, you know, so, which is interesting because we do do that when people will come to us and say they have a mental health problem. And I just find that really odd. So, uh, you know, when, with those things that I said, you know, those are the things that I find in scripture, uh, that, uh, that the demonic and Satan are involved in. They're obviously involved in temptation. I don't think there's a Christian that would argue with that, that Satan tempts us. I think one of the things you have to understand is we, we live in a fallen world. Our, our world is broken. Uh, our world is sinful. Our world is not the way that it was created to be. I mean, God will, Jesus will come and return and he will redeem the world, but the world has not been redeemed. We hear creation groans for that. And yes. so it, it is not redeemed. I mean, it's a reflection of what it will be, but uh, it's not what it should be. And so, you know, our world does not, you know, in some sense, as we talk about, we look at the scriptures, it says, you know, things like the prince of the power of the air, that Satan is really has control within this world to some extent and is trying to manipulate us. And so certainly temptation is there. And, you know, I see temptation as everything from when I'm driving down the street and there's a salacious you know, sign up advertising something that I probably shouldn't be involved in down to the fact that, you know, I think a lot of Christians think about temptation as maybe Satan, like putting a thought in your mind. But, you know, I, I think most of the time temptations are all around us. So yes. I think most Christians agree that, uh, you know, the demonic are involved in those types of things. And, and, and clearly the scriptures speak to that deception. You know, Jesus says that Satan is the father of lies yes. and he deceives us. He deceived. That's the very, you know, one of the very first sins that occurs in the scriptures as, yes. Uh, Eve being deceived, you know, she is, she is tricked uh, into sinning. And so there's a deceptive aspect. And so I do believe that the demonic can deceive us. And, you know, there's an age old discussion on whether the demonic and Satan can put thoughts in your mind. And, you know, I mean, there's certainly days where I think there's just no doubt that he can. And so, you know, and, and then other days I kind of get theological and think maybe he can't, but the thing is, is that, you know, it does seem like he can. And so mm. we can be deceived. And so, you know, God wants us to focus our thoughts on him and on these higher things so that we're not distracted. And then accusation. I mean, we see Satan standing before God, accusing Job. Mm. Uh, we see uh, in some of the other pro um, prophet books, uh, you know, God, you know, the, the image of, of Satan standing there and accusing uh, the prophet. And so, you know, Satan accuses us before God. And then we have the great intercessor that stands. Mm. So he accuses us and says, you know, you're not good enough to be loved by God, but he also mm. accuses us before the father. And so Jesus stands as the great intercessor and as the redeemer in that. And then 
clearly there's no doubt in the scriptures that the demonic causes illness. Job is the greatest example of that. I mean, we see behind the curtain, we see Satan ask to go after Job and God give him permission. So, um, I mean, there's some very interesting things we learn from that, that Satan has to ask permission, which I really think is a great aspect of, you know, to see God's sovereignty that, you know, nothing is going to touch you without God allowing that to occur, even in this broken and fallen world. But clearly there are affirmities infirmities in the scripture. Jesus heals a woman that has a, a crooked a leg, you know, or broken leg or a leg that, and it, you know, he says that it's a messenger of Satan. I mean, so there are examples of this. I mean, Paul even says that his, uh, his affliction mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, his thorn is a messenger of Satan. So there are examples uh, of that. And so when I say infirmity, I'm not, I'm not talking about an evil spirit coming in. I'm talking about Got, you know, Satan making you or a demonic uh, influence making you ill from the outside. So I think those four things, temptation, deception, accusation, and infirmity, I would refer to those as oppression as a whole. I think huh. that's, you know, how, you know, people will talk about oppression versus possession. And, and I think that's how Satan oppresses us. You know, he tempts us, he deceives us, he accuses us, and, and he causes, can cause us to be ill. Now, I would also say this, Jesus was very sensitive spiritually, obviously, and he could determine when a person was physically ill because of the demonic and physically ill just because we live in a broken world and we get ill. Uh, and, but his, and his disciples could figure that out most of the time, but I'm not spent sensitive enough to determine that. And I don't know how many of us really are. So if I have somebody before me that's ill, I'll pray for healing. And I'll also pray against the demonic. I mean, I pray against the demonic for all my Christian friends and brothers and sisters. And so, you know, I hope they do the same thing for me. So I don't, you know, I don't want to look at one kind of illness and say, well, this is always, this infirmity is always caused by the demonic. Uh, You know, I don't, you know, we always want to be praying against the demonic. We want to be praying for healing. Uh, But again, those are, you know, that's, we're, we're requesting for God to do that. That's not some special different thing for mental illness. And then I think finally, you know, the thing that comes up a lot is this idea of possession. Possession is actually mentioned very few times in the scripture mm-hmm. as a whole. I love um, that in your it, book. I loved how you, you know, in fact, it's that. almost, it's virtually never mentioned in the epistles in huh. the early church. Yep. Uh, and so, you know, again, that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I'm just saying that, you know, I think we have to put it in context. I mean, we act like it happens all the time. Uh, in the scripture, and it really doesn't. And, and possession in the scripture is very different than people being ill. Um, you know, it's not even it's pretty much not even pretty clear that the people that are ill, uh, demonically ill, uh, they don't realize that their illness is caused by the demonic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Job doesn't in any sense seem to know that Satan has caused his illness. He knows that God is in control. And so, um, you know, but, you know, if you look at Legion, you know, that he's, he's possessed mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. Jesus casts the demons out into the pigs. And you look at the clairvoyant woman that's following Paul around and acts and saying, you know, this is, you know, and, and really what's really bizarre about that story is Paul actually th- cast the demon out of her because she's bothering him, not really as <laughs> any kind of spiritual kind sure. of, you know, she, she won't shut up and it, it's bothering <laughs> I, I mean, there are a few people that. that I would want to do that too. You know, so I mean, it, it you know, it's it, we like kind of make this this really high spiritual kind. Of, so the thing is, is that you know, in possession, I think what we're talking about is where the where the demonic literally has taken control of an individual. They have entered that individual and yeah. they control them. 
And, you know, that's very different than these other things. These other things that we're talking about are very much from the outside coming and yeah. attacking you, whereas possession is controlling you. And, um, you know, I would say this, I would say, I think it would be very difficult for someone to take the scripture and demonstrate to me that a Christian, someone who was born again, someone who had the Holy Spirit living inside of them could be possessed. Mm -hmm. I, I just don't see how that would even be possible. Right. Um, that the, that a demonic entity would take up residence in the temple right. of the Holy Spirit. Right. I just don't see how that's possible. So if you're dealing with a person who has a mental health problem and they are a Christian, they're a believer, you know, possession's off the table. But certainly oppression is always present, and not just for people that have mental health problems. Oppression is there for you and for me and any Christian. Uh, so that's just, you know, that's just how it is. So, you know, I think that, you know, when we look at, uh, you know, the people that are possessed in the scriptures, they're very different most of the time than people sure. that have mental health problems. It's, it's not a one-to-one. -one. Now, I know a lot of times, you know, people that kind of kind of look at the scriptures with a jaundiced eye and kind of don't think of them as the word of God might say, well, you know, what you're looking at there when these people, when when they write that they have evil spirits, really those were the mentally ill, uh, and they just were pre-scientific and they didn't understand that. And again, mm -hmm. I think that's a, you know, I think it's a real problem because clearly Jesus believed that they were possessed uh, or they had an evil spirit and he cast that evil spirit out. So, you know, I, I think that we have to be careful with that. And, and as I go through the scriptures, I see a real difference between people that are possessed and then people that are, you know, there's certainly mentions of people that are mad, that they have madness or yes. insanity. Yes, and, Nebuchadnezzar and is one. They're not haven't. mentioned at the same time. Sure. Matt, you touched on something that's very personal, um, that's also very hard to, to separate, and that is what part of an illness can be the oppression or can be as in Job's situation, Satan going after someone and then they are ill and then the the part that's just their body, their physical biology is not functioning as it ought. Because I know with my son, I've prayed for healing on both areas that whatever part of his challenges are of a demonic realm, that the Lord is bigger and knows more than I can imagine but whatever is cellular, biological, physical, that the Lord would also be the great physician and direct me as his mom of where to take him. How do we help our church friends think in that way rather than just possession, go away weirdo, or cancer, let me help you? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we've, as a, as a people, as a church, we, we've really lost the sense of how God has created us. I mean, huh. we think of ourselves as solely spiritual, mm. uh, and we aren't. We are spiritual, but we also have a physical body, and God made us physical. He chose to make us that way, and he made us that way for a reason. I'm not sure what that reason is, but he did that. <laughs> well, he every physical he put us in a physical world, you know, and, yes. and, you know, the scripture tells us that he will come back to us and he will live with us here in a physical sense. I mean, that's right. what it says. And so, and Jesus came and he was physical. He had a body. And so I, I think, you know, first we have to understand that we have a physical body. I like to think about people as kind of a, a four part entity. You have a, a spirit, a mind, a body, 
and relationships. And I, I get that mostly from Luke 2, 52, where it says Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, and in, in his relationship with God and man. So wisdom is mental, stature is physical, relationship with God is spiritual, relationship with man is his relationships. And that, that's kind of the full person. And so that's how God's made us also. And so I think we have to understand that when we're affected by any kind of illness, regardless of what that illness is, it affects every aspect of our being because we are a unity not those are not individual pieces they are combined yeah. and and working together and and interacting much like the trinity does you know so you know something affects the father it affects the son something affects your mind it affects your body something affects your relationships it affects your spirit i mean it affects every aspect of us so when you're struggling with cancer it affects you spiritually mentally physically and relationally yeah. we would never everybody knows that i mean that's just a fact so it's the same thing with mental health problems i think a second thing we have to understand is that we live in a fallen world. And so we get sick and we die and, mm -hmm. and terrible things happen. And so any illness, I mean, strep throat is really the result of original sin. It, it sure. happens because of a broken world. If there was no original sin, if we all lived in the garden with Adam and Eve still to this day, walking with God, we would not get strep throat. Okay, and we would not. That would get be so fabulous. <laughs> we would not have schizophrenia, you know. Right. And so, so the thing is, is that you know these there will be no cancer. And so, the the thing is, is that every illness, no matter how trivial we think of it, can be looked at from a spiritual perspective. You know, from a, a, a the genesis of it being spiritual in nature. And so, you know, I think when we, you know, as again, if we're looking at ourselves as a whole being, and we're we're understanding what God has asked us to do in those situations, he's asked us to pray. And so we, you know, he says, bring the, you know, so anyone is ill, bring him to the elders and anoint him with oil and the prayer of a righteous man is effective. I mean, we, we are to pray over that individual. We're to pray for healing. I think we're to pray for the, against the demonic. I think we're to pray for comfort and peace for that individual and their family. You know, and we, we're, we're, this is a fellowship, but I think yeah. something that we forget is that, you know, I, I, I use this, I'm not Catholic, but I'll use this quote from St. Fran, from, uh, from Francis, Pope Francis. I mean, he said, you know, you, uh, how do we deal with the hunger, hungry? Uh, you pray for, you pray for the hungry and then you feed them. That's mm -hmm. how prayer works. Huh. And so, you know, I, I think that that's a, we've forgotten that aspect of it. So mm. going back to the man born blind, I mean, Jesus doesn't come up to this blind guy and go, oh, brother, I'm so sorry that you're suffering. Let me pray for you. And then just, you know, the Christian cop-out phrase, you know, and then, then I'll just walk on. No, he relieves his suffering. Mm. He takes his blindness away. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, I can pray for someone to take their blindness away, but I know that I can help relieve their suffering. Mm. I know that if I have a family in my church that has a mental health problem, I can go over and I can mow their grass. I can go over and I can help them with their financial issues. I can get the church to give from the benevolence fund. I can take their kids out for so the parents can have a break. I, I mean, I can do things to relieve their suffering, much like I do if a woman was pregnant. You know, I might help out the family. So. Sure. Jesus relieves the suffering of the man born blind, and it's out of that relationship that he builds by relieving his suffering that he is later able to, re to reveal himself as the Messiah mm -hmm. to that man. And so I think that's kind of our model. Mm -hmm. You know, we re recognize that physical and spiritual are both 
aspects of our being that the church should be involved in. You know, we don't abdicate the physical anymore. Recognize that we live in a broken world and every negative thing that happens to us, no matter how trivial we think it is or how serious we think it is, is a result of brokenness in this world. Not a personal problem, but a a problem of being in sin. And then thirdly, I think we recognize that we have a role to relieve people's suffering. I mean, what does Jesus Mm. say to, you know, those people that come to him and say, but Lord, we, you know, we did this in your name and we did that. And he said, well, you know, when did we see you? Well, you know, you clothed me, you visited me, you took care of me, you gave me some water. I mean, those, I mean, that's relieving suffering. What he doesn't say is you prayed for me. Huh. You, he, he never mentions a spiritual thing. He only mentions physical things. I'm not saying those spiritual things aren't important. Right. I'm just saying that he is equating those physical, uh, that physical relief of suffering uh, with any spiritual discipline that we would come up with. There's a lot of activity that we could be doing as believers in our communities, isn't there? That we miss by just saying, well, I'll pray for you. I mean, my, oh, absolutely. my family has gone through one of the hardest years, probably the second hardest year we've ever gone through this last year with pain and physical pain that has not been relieved. And and even though it hasn't been, we do pray that it is. But I've been over at my mom's house countless hours helping with dishes or helping with laundry and helping with showering. And I mean, that's relieving someone's suffering. It's not just in a healing you know, which no, absolutely. And just being present. I mean, just being willing to serve in those ways that, that we might think you know, most of the time with mental health problems, particularly, we just kind of have this kind of like, well, I don't know what to do with that. You know, yeah. I can't, you know, and I, I say, look, you know, it, when I when I do training at churches and teaching at churches and relationships, this, I say, you don't have to do anything different for someone with a mental health problem than you would do for anybody with cancer or pregnancy, okay? I mean, we know nothing, you know, I promise you that I know about nothing uh, about cancer. I got, you know, I know stage four is bad, stage one is better. Mm. I know it's bad to have it. I know pancreatic cancer will just about always kill you and other ones, I mean, you know, I know a couple of little things you learn off the TV. I mean, so so there you go. I mean, I don't know much about cancer, but if somebody tells me that they have cancer, Mm. I do know that that is going to seriously affect their life. And I know that it's going to affect their relationships, their finances, their their mental life, their spiritual life. And there are very simple things I can do to help them, even though I know nothing about cancer. So you don't need to know anything about mental health problems other than that they're serious and they damage people and they disable people. Yeah. And then you just step into that suffering and you say, I'm willing to bear your burden with you. I'm willing to walk along with you. I mean, I'm not sure, you know, one of the things I get very frustrated sometimes, you know, and I've said it more than one time with people I work with or graduate students have, what, you know, I'm tired of telling Christians that they need to care for people and they need to be nice to people. I mean, that, that should see, be an obvious. Can okay? we all play nicely on the playground? Yeah. How hard is that? It's not right. I mean, it's not, you know, if someone is suffering, yes. you know, we should not worry about why they're suffering. You know, we do it we, when we drive to work, when we drive home in the evening, we do it. We see the guy sitting on the corner. You know, he's got the sign that says whatever, and he looks, you know, he looks like he slept under a bridge last night, and we justify our lack of empathy and our lack of involvement 
by judging why he's like he is. Absolutely. Who cares why he's like he is? In fact, let's say that the reason he's like he is is because he made a hundred bad decisions and it's totally his fault. Does that, where's the, where's the qualifier in the scriptures that says when someone's suffering and they did it to themselves, don't help. I, I just don't see that. And so, you know, and then we come up, well, I don't want to give him money because he'll go buy alcohol. Well, I don't want to. Do, okay, well, great. Well, what are you going to do? Yeah, well, okay. how do you know what he's going to do with it anyways? Right. And, and the thing is, is that you're not serving, again, back to that verse, you're not serving this person because of them or because of your own great altruism. You're serving out of your service to Christ. When did I see you, Lord? Well, I was hungry and you fed me. Right. I mean, you know, I was sick and you took care of me. So, you know, you can literally think that mental illness is the demonic, okay? You can think that, that's fine. Think that. But that does not in any way keep you from being liable for the fact that God says you, could care, you should care for that person. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the first part of our conversation. You can find the show notes and reference resources in the podcast description or on our website, reframingministries.com. If you were impacted by the first part of our interview, it would be great if you shared it on social media or shared it with some friends who you know it would encourage. You can email me personally at reframingministries at insight.org and connect with Reframing Ministries on our social media platforms. Thank you again for joining us today at Reframing Ministries. Check back into the Reframing Ministries podcast later this week to listen to the second half of the discussion you heard today. The Reframing Ministries podcast is a production of Insight for Living Ministries.